Welcome to The Practice of Nonprofit Leadership, a podcast specifically designed for executive directors of nonprofit organizations. With a touch of humor, your co hosts, Tim and Nathan, work to provide encouragement, insights, and practical strategies to help you be a more effective leader. And now, here's Tim and Nathan. Welcome to episode 114 of The Practice of Nonprofit Leadership. I'm Tim Barnes. And I'm Nathan Ruby. Hey, Tim, have you ever sat down on your couch and Googled fundraising metrics just to see what's out there and, and what pops up on the internet? I have to say, Nathan, that's one of the things I've never even thought about doing. So, uh, no, I haven't done that. Really? Huh. What well, Would it be weird if I did that? Well, no, for you, that's kind of normal. So I don't have a problem with that at all. Well, <laughs> all right then, because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Fundraising metrics, how to use them, and also how they can lie to you. Wow. Well, here on the Practice of <laughs> Nonprofit Leadership, we often talk about how numbers are not always exact or written in stone. They tell a story, and that story is often dynamic. It changes and evolves over time. Numbers are not necessarily black and white, maybe a little more gray, I guess, Nathan. Is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely right, Tim. And so today we're going to talk about four common fundraising metrics. And these four are gift size, new donors, cost of dollar raised, and return on investment, commonly referred to as ROI. So, all right, we ready to hit it? Well, I'm going to throw you a, a curveball, Nathan. Uh-oh. Who should, who should be listening to this? Who does this apply to? Well, who should be concerned about, about fundraising metrics? Well, that's a good question, Tim. And, you know, it, it's really, you know, anybody involved in the fundraising process, and especially executive directors of smaller organizations. And because these type of metrics are often overlooked and the they're not covered in board meetings and your your board members are not asking you for this not these numbers and your you know whoever is handling your finance office, your accounting people, your bookkeeping people, they're not asking for this e- either. And so it's really easy to overlook metrics. And now I am not a Oh, what am I going to say, Tim? Uh, I, I'm not a uh, true believer. Uh, we, we watched uh, Christmas Chronicles the other day, Tim, my wife and I. So there was true believer was, you know, was in there. So I'm not a, 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 a true believer in metrics. I think they're extremely helpful. And I do think they tell a story that we need to pay attention to. So these are things you do need to pay attention to. But they're also they also could be misleading, and that's the part today of of the how they lie to you. Uh, and so, if you are running a nonprofit organization, if you're the executive director, you really need to be paying attention to this stuff. Um, and that's why we're talking about it today. So, if you're tempted to to uh, turn off your uh, whatever you're listening to and go somewhere else, Nathan says, stay here because it's really important that you know this. So Yes, it is. <laughs> so let's dive in. I think we're ready to go now. All right, let's hit it. Uh, number one, uh, gift size. Now, this is a really common one because people get excited about large gifts that come in and you know it doesn't make any difference. A, a large gift is, is relative. So a large gift to you may be 
$500 or maybe it's a hundred dollars or maybe it's $5,000 or 50,000 or, you know, it depends there. Major gifts or big gifts. They're, they're relative based on the size of the organization and gifts that you typically get. But no matter what your, your threshold is for major gifts or, or large gifts, gift size gets people excited. Uh, anytime a big gift comes in, you know, it, it, and I do the same thing. I get it. I get a gift. That's a big one for us. And I will, I'll either call or text, uh, my philanthropy committee chair. I may text the board president. I may text the treasurer and say, Oh my gosh, look what we got today. Uh, and so I, you know, I do the same thing. I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, but it is you, you've got to use that within context. So, all right. So how do you use gift size as a metric? Well, first of all, is it is a way to tell if your fundraising strategy is working or not. So if you were doing, uh, for this example, let's say that you're, you are going to do a direct mail piece and typical direct mail response, uh, depending on a whole bunch of factors, but for a general rule of thumb, let's say one to 3% is, is kind of a normal average response that you might expect. And $25, $30 would be uh, an average gift. So let, let's say 3% uh, response rate and $30 average gift. Those are normal, normal average for your organization. Well, let's say you send a direct mail piece out and you get a 10% response rate and a hundred dollar average gift. <laughs> well, you could say, Oh my gosh, based on that metric that worked really well. We need to do that again. We need to do another letter just like that. And that would be justified. I mean, if you got a 10% response rate and a hundred dollar average gift, seriously, you call Tim and I and tell us how you did it <laughs> because we'd like to copy it. And so, but what happens in those numbers, and this is how it can lie to you is what's called outliers. And an outlier is when something happens that is not normal or not average. And you can have po- outliers to the positive side and outliers to the negative sides. So let's say that we got our $100 average gift, but when we started looking in there and we started peeling back some of the layers of the onion, we realized that, oh, we got a $5,000 gift from a donor that we kind of already expected was going to send that gift anyway. And so what happened was that that donor was getting ready to send the check and they just all of a sudden here is this, this mailer that comes in the mail. And oh, there's an envelope that's already got the address on it. And I could just stick my check in there and send it back. And it's simple and it's easy. That happens all the time. That's pretty common. Well, then you need to take that $5,000 out of your direct mail numbers and recalculate the numbers. So now without your $5,000 gift in there, now your appeal, maybe maybe the, the 3% response rate or the 10% response rate is still there, but now you're down to $15 uh, uh, average or $18 or $20. Now you would make a different conclusion about that particular appeal. So you have to make sure when you're reviewing the results, those results and you see those numbers that you don't just take that a, as a as a gospel truth or, or, or as a definite, you've got to look and make sure that there aren't any outliers in there or oddball gifts or anything in there that would skew the numbers when you're looking at it. Oh, that's really good. I think anytime you just, you try to average something, 
you you have to look at the whole picture. You can't just take it at face value. So that's a that's a really good uh, good word. Yeah, and I think also on on appeals like that on gift size, I think that works both ways. I mean, the other side of that would be, you know, if you were way under, okay, well that's weird. You know, if I've done two or three of these and I expected a certain thing and I got something that was way under, you know, I got a a half a percent response rate as opposed to a 3%. Oh, uh, well, okay. That's, you know, what well, it's worth looking into more. So, so those, those oddballs or those outliers work on both the positive and the negative side. So again, when you get something that's way out of, out of, out of normal for gift size, check into the details and see what's going on. All right. Number two, number of new donors. Now, I hear all the time as, as I'm talking to, to listeners and I'm talking to other executive directors and, you know, once in a while from my own board, uh, there's always this concern about new donors. And, you know, if you're like my, Tim, I don't know about your donor base. I'll probably, I'll ask this in a second, but, but my donor base is, and every organization I've ever worked for, their donor base is aging. I mean, that is, the, the bulk of our donors and, and the organizations that I have worked for have been in that, you know, at least for sure 50 and above, but probably 60 or 65 and above. And certainly that's the case now. And so there is a concern about new donors and how do we, how do we replace donors as they, as they age out? And I don't know, Tim, is that, is that fair for your organization? Is that pretty consistent or no? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we continually bring new people into our organization as they come, they oftentimes bring donors with them. And so it kind of depends on where they're at. But I think in general, uh, I would say we're probably at the same, same stage. But how important is it? I mean, should it be a primary concern or is it a, Hey, this is something that we, we need to be tracking. And, you know, I do, I do believe, and I will say that every organization needs to have a steady stream of new donors coming into the donor file. I, I, a, a healthy, vibrant new donor strategy is important. All right, and I'm I'm not telling you it's not uh, because it is. But here's the here's the lie of using strict straight new donor numbers as the metric, um, and that is that's that's not the best metric to pay attention to when you're talking about total donors. So on average, organizations only keep 45% of the donors that gave year over year. So you have a you have a new donor that comes in and 40 only 45% of them give a gift in the second year. And so that attrition rate is atrocious. <laughs> So, and that's average. So that is all across all organizations. So if you are losing, if you're, if you're keeping, if you're, a, a, if you're on average organizations only keep 45% of donors. So that means you're losing 55% of your donors. Well, let me tell you, it is way, way, way easier to keep an existing donor than to go and find a new donor. So it, you know, it's kind of like if you're in a boat and, and you're out on a, like a rowboat and you're out in a pond and there's a hole in the boat and the the boat is sinking because there's a hole in the boat and you've got a bucket and you're you're just, you know, you're scooping water, you're scooping water, you're scooping water. 
Well, you could scoop water, but if the water's coming in faster than you're scooping it out, you can sink. So maybe there's a way to just like, you know, pick up a rag or something or, you know, some type and just plug the hole. And then the boat is not sinking as much. How many donors you had? And this is a simple calculation. It's just how many donors did you have this year versus last year? So we're coming up to year end and a really great, simple time to do this. It's hard to do it in November, December, because we have so many donors that are coming in. You know, you'll have donors that, that if they're giving an annual gift or they give it in December. So, you know, late December, late November, early December is really not the time to run this number. The time to run this number, I always do it, Tim. It's part of my New Year's Day routine. You know, I, I try to not work too much on New Year's Day or, you know, during that holiday. But that is always when I run my numbers because then I know exactly what my donor numbers were for the year compared to the year before. Um, and just see where you're at and, and see if that's if that's running low or you know what those trends are. So um it is it is much, much easier to stop donors going out the back door than to solely focus on new donors coming in the front door. So if I'm sitting here listening to you, I, I would think I've got to figure out how to do both. You know, how do I continue to, to continue build strong relationships with those who are already on board? And yet part of my time still needs to be, hey, who needs to know about us? Who needs to come in? So you've got to kind of figure out what works for you, but you can't do one without the other, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, you know, it's hard to put an exact number on it, but in in my head, if I had to, if I had to put a percentage on it, Tim, I would say 70% of my effort would be on keeping existing donors through connecting and having conversations and calling them on the phone and visiting with them and newsletters and appeal letters and online communications and emails and texts and, you know, all those things that we do to keep, keep and, and connected to donors. I would spend 70% of my time, energy, and effort doing that. And then maybe 30% of, of new donors. How am I going to, you know, how could we do some event or how could we do something, whatever that is, to attract and acquire new donors? 70, 30, maybe even 80, 20, somewhere, somewhere in there. That, that's where I would put that focus. Well, don't, and don't you feel like if you're doing a really good job with your current donors, Word of mouth is so powerful and they, they like, oh man, you need to hear about our organization. And uh, so it's, it's worth it. I think uh, treating your, your current donors well and, and working with them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It will pay, it will pay more dividend now and more dividend later than trying to bring in new donors and then go through a five-year you know, cultivation process of trying to get them educated up and connected enough to the organization to where you already have your donors that you're going to be losing. All right. Number three, cost of dollar raised. Uh, so this is, this is an important one. Um, and answering this, this cost of dollar raised, answering this question, for the most part, um, will help you answer the question, should I keep doing this? Um, and what, what does that mean when I say, what should I keep doing this? Should you keep doing a specific fundraising strategy or tactic? Um, and, and really what this boils down to 
is is determining the total revenue generated by the the strategy, whatever it is that you're going to do, minus the costs, both hard and soft costs that it took for you to put that put to to do that event or that direct mail piece. So, for this example, we're going to use a golf outing. Uh, everybody's familiar with golf outings. You know, it, it's it, if you don't have a golf outing and you went to your board and you said, hey, I think we should do a golf outing, you would probably have 80 to 90 percent of your board members agree with you that that was a good idea. Um, whether it's actually a good idea or not, everybody loves a golf outing. So we're going to use that as an example. So if you did a golf outing um, and let's say that you had prizes, because typically you go to a uh, uh, a golf outing and you have prizes. You have a prize for the longest drive and you have a prize for closest to the pin and you have a prize for closest to the center line and all kinds of other prizes, you know, the winning team and the second team and the third place team. And if you've got, you know, if you've got a full maxed out hundred, 144 person, uh, golf outing, you might have, you know, an A flight and a B flight. So there's all kinds of prizes that you could do at a, at a golf event. So, did you pay for those prizes? Did you have to go out and purchase those prizes? Okay, well, if you purchase those prizes, that goes against the, the cost of the event. You, you have to subtract that out of the total revenue to see what your net revenue is. Um, but no, no, Nathan, we did not pay for those prizes. We sent our volunteers out and we sent our staff. They, our staff volunteered to go out and, and get prizes on, our, uh, on some of their spare time. Okay, great. Well, did you count the cost of having your staff out there? Or did you count the cost of the staff person who was managing the volunteers to go out and pick that stuff up? Did you have a meal? Well, yeah, we had a meal. Um, and it was, you know, it was part of the cost of the of the golfing thing. Okay, well, great. Then you've already got that added in. But if you catered the meal, Okay, well, now you've got catering. Um, how much time did your staff person or did you uh, spend working with the caterer to get the, the, the meal figured out and to get it all figured out? There's cost to that. That's, that's the, the cost of the meal is a hard cost. Your time to manage all that is a soft cost. And executive directors are pretty good at including the hard costs because it's easy. You know, the, the meal, the, the caterer, cost us $953. Well, excellent. You got a receipt. That's an easy thing to count. Um, the 27 hours, which is a half a week of your time that you spent at your, at the, at the cost or at the price that you are being paid, that usually doesn't get thrown into the, you know, the cost of a golf outing. So you get my point. Um, so you have to understand that you get all of those costs into that event, then total raise minus total expenses, that gives you a net amount. Um, and I'm not saying this to, to knock on golf outings. That's not what I'm trying to do here. What I'm saying is, is that you make sure that you have all of the costs associated with a specific strategy so that then you can make a good financial decision on whether or not that event, whether it's a golf outing or a direct mail piece or grant work or anything else that you will continue to do that or not. And here, here's a little hint. Sometimes 
lot of the time, some somewhere between sometimes and a lot of the time, whatever it is that you're doing in your fundraising may actually be losing money when you add everything into it. Um, so you really got to take a hard look at both the hard costs and the soft costs to come up with the real return on investment. So how does cost of a dollar raised, how does it lie to you? Well, it'll lie to you in a, uh, if you have an event that is uh, supposed to be marketing based. So you may want to do like uh, uh, a campaign or an event to raise awareness or that gets in front of more people or educates people on what you do. And those type of things are totally okay. I mean, you can totally do that and not have net revenue as a primary goal of that function, of, of that thing that you're doing. Um, and so we call those marketing events or communication events. So if you have a marketing event, if you want to do a, uh, a, a dinner and you want to invite donors to come over to the dinner and, and learn about what you're doing, um, and you want to call that a, 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 a marketing or communication effort. And if it breaks even, if it generates enough money to break even, that's awesome. I mean, that's great. But what you, what you have to get careful in is when you have an event like that and it's built into your fundraising revenue, uh, into your fundraising plan, and then it only breaks even year after year after year, well, then you're then you're going backwards, um, and that that's something you have to look at of whether you want to continue to do that or not. I've seen that happen in a lot of places with a lot of organizations. You're spot on, Nathan. It's uh, it's easy to miss everything that goes into pulling off something like that. Yeah, it's it it it's looking at those costs, and um, like I said, the hard costs are easy because you have a receipt. You know, you have an invoice, you have a receipt. That's easy to count. It is the amount of staff time that goes into that, not only the day of itself, but the planning, the pre-planning and the planning, and then the follow-up and the post-event. And yeah, it, it's when you add that all up, you got to be producing some pretty good revenue to offset the cost of most events. All right. Yeah. Um, now let's go on to the fourth one. Uh, ROI, return on investment. So this is a little bit uh, cost of dollar raised, uh, but not exactly the same. So um, according to the Association of Fundraising Professionals, AFP, the average fundraising ROI for nonprofits in North America is 3.0, meaning that for every dollar spent on fundraising, nonprofits generate $3 in net income. So remember, net is after expenses, which goes back to our cost of dollar raise. So uh, if you are spending a dollar on fundraising, then according to this number, you should be bringing in a net of $3 for every dollar spent. Um, and now this is a great rule of thumb that you can use across your entire fundraising program. Uh, it, it's an average that... Um, because it's an average, that what they've done is they've already accounted for the billion dollar, you know, nonprofits. And there there are, if you haven't ever looked, there are billion with a B. There are billion dollar nonprofits out there. Uh not not us, not Tim and I. Uh 
probably not you if you're if you're listening to our podcast maybe maybe but probably not um and then this also averages out what i call the recreational nonprofit so you know maybe a nonprofit that somebody started and they're just funding it themselves and they've got a $10,000 budget you know so so the really high really low is is those are averaged out and so you can look at your overall program and say okay we spent X amount of dollars, we generated this amount of dollars after expenses, and where am I based on that 3.0? Uh, and so that is helpful to look at a at a big overarching uh, where you are from a fundraising perspective. But again, it has its limits. And so here's how ROI will lie to you. Um, ROI is essentially um, relevant, especially relevant, in a mature fundraising situation. So let's say, for example, you do an appeal. Um, let's say you do a, a year-end appeal, and you've done that appeal for five years. Um, well, if you've done it for five years, then you are going to have a really solid ROI on that. You are go- you are going to know exactly what that is. You're going to know what your expenses are going to be. You're probably you're going to know what your expected revenue is going to be. You are going to have very good data on that. Um, however, if you are just starting something new, then ROI isn't really relevant. Uh, if you start that new, so say you're going to start a new appeal. Uh, let's say uh, you're going to start a spring appeal. You've never done one before. Well you're not you're you're not going to be able to maximize that because your donors have never gotten a spring appeal before. So in my experience what I've seen is it typically takes 3 years whether it's an appeal or an event or an online strategy it it usually takes about 3 cycles to get your donors ready to say okay I so for at my organization we do a spring uh late March uh about about every year, late March. And we have donors who that is where they give. They know it's coming. They're expecting it. Um, and we're five, this is going to be, well, this will be fifth year this, this upcoming year. So I know pretty much what those numbers are going to be and what the ROI is going to be. Um, so three years to get it up to that speed. So if you're doing something new and you look at the ROI, well, it's not going to probably be very good. And, and, and the first year, you probably might even lose money on it. Well, you can't say, oh, well, I got a negative ROI, so I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, you know, you've got to expect that the first year. And maybe you break even the second year and maybe you make money the third year. So you got to be careful on new things that you're doing uh, and making sure that you give a fund a new fundraising strategy or a new tactic to that strategy time to mature for ROI to really start to to make sense in that situation. Uh, another way that ROI will lie to you um, is that ROI doesn't take into account how competent you are as a fundraiser. So, for example, I am not a fundraising event person. Um, you know, I know the basics, I know the outlines, uh, I, I know the, I, I know how it flows, but I, that is not my area of expertise. Never has been, never will be. And so if I did an, an event all by myself where I was the, I was leading it, I was planning it, I was putting it together, I was doing all those things. And then you take, 
uh, the same event, the same organization, the same donors, and you bring in a fundraising uh, event uh, planner. Now, I'm not saying a wedding planner uh, or a party planner. I'm saying an experienced fundraising event planner. Those are different. Uh, You bring somebody in that's an expert that really knows what they're doing. Well, I would expect them to raise a heck of a lot more money than I will. Um, and so that, that's just, that's just the way it is. That's what expertise does. And so, well, you may be saying, well, come on, Nathan, hold on. That ROI again is a percentage. And so whether you do it yourself or whether you pay an expert to do it, the ROI will be a percentage. So you have to pay the expert to do it. And so if you raise more money, you know, you've got that expense in there. Whereas when you did it yourself, you don't have the expense to pay. Well, that's a good question. And it's a good mm-hmm. thing that you brought that up uh, because here's the answer. In fundraising, expertise will have a compounding effect. So your expert will bring in two times, three times, four times what I would do if I was doing it without any experience at all. And so when you look at ROI on uh, organizational event uh, or uh, ROI, you just got to be careful because if you don't have a team with real experts in fundraising, it'll be very difficult for you to hit to some of the benchmarks that if you look out on the on, on the internet, you'll find benchmarks for ROIs for this type of fundraising, this type of fundraising. But you know, if you don't have really high end experts to do that type of work, it, it it's that's not relevant to you. And it doesn't mean that you should stop doing it. It just means that you can't expect the same ROI that you know the hospital down the street or the university or a seven million dollar nonprofit has because they've got different levels of expertise than what you do. Well, Nathan, this is all really, really good. And I just want to remind our listeners, you know, we've gone through a lot of information. I mean, this this flows out of you because it's who you are. <laughs> you know? I was talking kind of fast there, wasn't I? Oh, it's all good. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, you can either, if you don't, if you want to listen to the, the episode again, that'd be great. But also we have transcript available on our show notes. So if they're like, what was he saying? What, is he, what does that mean? You can go to the show notes and get a pretty good idea of what we what we've shared. What Nathan, why don't you kind of bring it all together yeah. here? So Mark Twain once said there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. <laughs> and fundraising metrics can be extremely helpful in understanding what fundraising strategy and tactics are working, which ones need to be changed, and sometimes, and, and this might be even most importantly, which ones need to be dropped altogether. While these numbers are indeed very helpful, they can also be extremely misleading and can potentially take you down the wrong path. So use them as a guideline, kind of as a way to say, hey, I think we're going in the right direction. Let's keep moving forward. Or, hey, I think something isn't right. We need to dig into this more. And, you know, we may want to think about changing something. Use fundraising metrics as a guide not as an absolute decision maker. Thanks for listening today. If you're benefiting from what's being shared on this podcast, we would like to ask you to share a review on the platform that you're listening to. Let us know how the podcast has benefited you. If you'd like to get in touch with us, 
Our contact information can be found in the show notes. That's all for today. Until next time.